This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, we here at Radio Parallax are fond of noting anniversaries, and one we sort of, I guess, never really mentioned was the fact that July, as in July of 2003, marked our beginning here at KDVS. So now we've completed a dozen years, yes, 12 full years of broadcasting, and we haven't missed a show in 12 years. So, Mr. Miller, why don't you arrange a round of applause for ourselves? We were set to interview author Ed Haslam about, well, probably one of the weirdest stories we've reported on in 12 years. It's a very, very strange story about a murder that took place 50 years ago this month, which is very strange, and it appears to have not been an accident that was in fact a murder. This case is a very strange reversal. We're familiar with murders that were staged to look like accidents, but this appears to be a case of an accident staged to be a murder because that route promised to be less embarrassing to certain powers that be. Yeah, it's a strange one. We'll try to talk about that on next week's show. And I must confess to having been rather remiss in the past few years about a science story that we should have been all over. The story is that of a well-respected neuroscientist here in the UC system who has been, shall we say, not your typical academic. Dr. James Fallon has had a successful career down at UC Irvine in the Neurosciences Department, specializing in investigating that most mysterious organ, the human brain. Dr. Fallon did make some headlines in the past few years about research he did into the brains of psychopaths and added quite a wrinkle to the story when he discovered, by scanning his own brain, that he he had all the markings of a psychopath. So we're very much hoping in uh, the weeks to come, to talk about the book, The Psychopath Inside, A Neuroscientist's Personal Journey into the Dark Side of the Brain by James Fallon. I'm pretty sure we'll get him because, well, he was one of my instructors in medical school. And I can tell you that my class was very fond of him. We named him our favorite teacher. And I think we should point out that although he has self-diagnosed himself as having the brain of a psychopath, he's never gotten in any trouble and uh, has led an exemplary life for the most part. I say for the most part because he himself admits that he is exactly the kind of guy to take one of his colleagues off to a (laughs) dive bar somewhere and before the evening's through, get him dancing on the tables drunk which for my money is a pretty low-grade example of psychopathic behavior. I would like to think that I myself (laughs) might encourage such behavior among colleagues. At any rate, we will be in pursuit of James Fallon for this program, as we will be in pursuit of Daniel Ellsberg for this program. I'd say those two guys are uh, probably number one and number two on our particular wish list. And I think we'll get them both. But today's program is going to go forward without a guest, unless someone phones in. And we're always optimists that somebody might. But there's so much to talk about, let's not delay any further. Friends of mine who by chance have never heard this program asked me, what it's about? 
And I always respond that it's about, it's kind of about whatever we feel like talking about. But that we do obviously have biases. So far in 12 years of programming, we've never once talked about fashion. Well, that's not strictly true either. We have, we have cited Mr. Blackwell's list on more than one occasion. That's mostly for its comedy value. And yes, Mr. Mellon, as far as I know, there, there, are, there is other value to fashion. I'm just a little vague on the details myself. But anyway, let's stop this blathering and talk about this date in history, which is the way we like to start every program. Our date in question is the 31st of July. And like on last week's program, I have to say that the 31st of July, like the 24th, is not one of history's more scintillating dates. For example, it was on July 31st in 1792 that the cornerstone for the U.S. Mint, the first official building of the federal government, was put in place. That's in Philadelphia where they still have a mint. On this date in 1912, in the first movie censorship regulation to go into effect, the U.S. government prohibits movies and photos of prize fights. And... Out of the fog, into the smog, (laughs) relentlessly. Yes, believe it or not, it was on July 31st in 1954 that a six-year U.S. research program in Los Angeles discovered that smog is in fact caused by the chemical reaction of sunlight on auto and industrial emissions. Yes, evidently Professor Harry Hagenschmidt down at Caltech took a look around and said, boy, this strange haze in the air. There's some um, photochemistry going on, and he was, of course, laughed at at first. But he was correct. And on this date, July 31st in 1975, Teamsters Union President, or that is to say former President Jimmy Hoffa, was reported missing in Detroit, Michigan. And he's still missing. There were certain people in the Teamsters Union and government and mafia who apparently did not want Mr. Hoffa to uh, continue his efforts to regain the Teamster presidency. And um, that's more enemies than anybody should probably try to take on at one time. Our quote of the day comes from an old Jesuit motto, which is that a great deal of good can be done in the world if one is not too careful about who gets the credit. And our quote of the day comes from Thomas Babington Macaulay, who said, the measure of a man's real character is what he would do if he knew he would never be found out. I think we'll have to run that one past Jim Fallon. Our joke of the day comes from the Borowitz Report, sent to us by our pal Gary Chu. The item is that just days after former Vice President Dick Cheney said he had no regrets about the invasion of Iraq, people fleeing their homes across the war-torn nation expressed tremendous relief that he was at peace with his decision. As news spread that Cheney would not change a thing about the 2003 invasion, Iraqis driven out of their villages and towns by marauding terrorists called the former Vice President's words well-timed, and soothing. Sabah al-Alausi, who fled Mosul when ISIS militants overran it last month, said that Cheney's confident pronouncement about the invasion of Iraq, quote, is the first good news I've heard in a long time, unquote. Adding, as I fled from town to town looking for a place where I might not suddenly be slain for no reason, one thought kept nagging at me. How does Dick Cheney feel about all of this? I can't tell you what a relief it is to know that he isn't losing any sleep. The Iraqi man said that he'd been concerned that Cheney might harbor regrets about Iraq, such as the trillions of dollars spent, the thousands of lives lost, 
the WMDs not found, the international disgrace of Abu Ghraib. But thanks to the former vice president's recent statements, he said, I now see I was worried about nothing. And boy, between Iraq, Syria, now Libya, what's going on in Gaza and what happened in Ukraine, we could do a whole show on bad news, which we're frankly not going to do. Let's jump to our stats of the day. The first is that the U.S. Senate voted 100 to 0 to note that Israel has the right to defend itself in regard to the rocket attacks. And no, we haven't yet verified whether defending yourself means blowing up schools and hospitals. We do want to digress slightly into noting our revulsion at seeing Israelis pulling up couches to watch the rockets going into Gaza and then cheering the explosions. And our stat of the day is that in the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians, 51% of Americans say they sympathize more with Israel. 14% say they sympathize more with the Palestinians. And 15% sympathize with neither. And 3% sympathize with both. Naturally, there's a strong partisan divide. 73% of Republicans sympathize with Israel compared to just 44% of Democrats. We do tend to think that the pro-Israeli bias of American public opinion is related to the press coverage. We've observed that when a BBC reporter was up on a hill covering the rocket attacks on Gaza and commenting upon the nearby people cheering the explosions, the crowd threatened the correspondent saying she better say the right things. And when she later tweeted that they were scum, she was reassigned to Moscow. And that's the BBC. The NBC News reporter, the only one they had on scene that could speak Arabic, after reporting upon the attack on the beach where four Palestinian youth were killed in Gaza, also got pulled off his Middle East assignment and put elsewhere. We think the actions of the Israeli government are unconscionable in Gaza and are far in excess of any kind of appropriate response to prior provocations. And I would note in saying that, that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. As far as coverage goes, we want to doff our hat to Richard Estes, speaking in tongues, who carried on an excellent discussion of what's going on in Gaza on his program last Friday. And of course, week in and week out, year in and year out, Crossing Continents, program here on KDVS provided by Gil Metavoy provides you, dear listener, with some rather sane perspectives on what's going on over there. This might be a good time to do our good news segment. We're trying to put at least one little item of good news in every program. And our good news comes from a piece in New Scientist magazine, June 28th issue. New Scientist, of course, is one of the uh, Prime source materials we rely upon to produce this show every week because it's for our money, just the best damn science magazine out there. Article by Laura Spinney talked about a wonder food, one with the potential to really help feed the world. And no, it's not some genetically modified wheat or rice. It's breadfruit. It was breadfruit, rather famously, that Captain William Bly was trying to transport from Tahiti to the New World when there was the famous Mutiny on the Bounty. Apparently the mutineers, led by Fletcher Christian, threw most of the thousand breadfruit plants overboard during their mutiny. But Bly was a a stubborn man, and he, on a second voyage, did attempt to transport the breadfruit to the West Indies. Now, they were supposed to be cheap food for slaves working in the um, 
cane fields. Uh, the slaves initially turned their nose up at the breadfruit, but within 50 years it became a staple on the island. And it's noted that, uh, well, it fell out of favor years ago when it was eclipsed by cheap imports based, based on wheat, rice, and maize. But that it's undergoing a renaissance on, in Jamaica and uh, in some other places. Turns out there are hundreds of varieties of breadfruit in the Pacific Islands. They've got different flavors, different textures, different fruiting seasons. The ones that Bly brought over were just two types, which were rather bland. So by re-examining the genetics of this plant, it's felt that some really tasty versions might help solve the food problems of some of our tropical regions. One interesting part of the article is that... Um, in finding these new types to re-import, uh, they are bringing over tissue cultures rather than the actual roots of the plants. Uh, by doing this, they avoid the diseases that inevitably come along with the uh, roots. And it's felt that these trees that are grown out of tissue cultures being disease-free, they bear fruit sooner, as early, as early as two years of age. Now, breadfruit, like bananas, are propagated vegetatively or clonally, that is by taking the rootstocks and moving those around instead of using seeds, because bananas with seeds, as I guess breadfruit with seeds, are kind of unpleasant to eat. And I'd be willing to bet dollars to donuts if someone listening to this broadcast today in food science departments uh, locally will we'll have some insight into this. And I hope you'll drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. In fact, you can drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com about any damn thing you hear on this show or just plain want to talk about. We've received a few... Uh, few of your letters of late, which were especially encouraging, saying that you enjoy listening. This makes us very happy. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Catch-22, with the news that a Glendora, California couple were threatened with a $500 fine by city officials if they didn't water their brown lawn. On that same day, legislators here in Sacramento authorized a fine of $500 for overwatering lawns. Said homeowner Michael Corte, I felt like I was an alternate universe. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for feeling the music after a 97-year-old man was kicked out of a California nursing home because he ignored repeated orders to stop playing the ukulele. Jim Farrell commented, management continually suppressed my talents. He moved to another nursing home. And according to The Economist magazine, it was an ugly week last week for sanitation. With the news that a New York Times study showed that 620 million Indians, about 50% of the country's population, have no access to a working toilet or latrine and thus defecate outside in the street or countryside. And um, if you've ever been to India, you, you will quickly find out that... Uh, this statistic just will ring true. Ms. McMillan can attest to the fact that you will see signs on beaches in India asking you to please not defecate on the beach. Now, you'd wonder, in visiting most countries, why they would put a sign like that up. But all too quickly, in India, 
one learns why it is so posted. All I will say is, thank God, the time I was getting a tour by one of Mr. Merlin's cousin in Western India, I refrained from putting on goggles and trunks and doing some open water swimming. Let's just say that the water and its environment was surprisingly polluted. Anyway, moving right along, it was both a bad and ugly week last week for historical accuracy with the news that in Budapest, a statue that depicts a falsified version of Hungarian history was erected and promptly pelted with eggs. Turns out that the statue is a project of the right-wing nationalist government, which shows Hungary as the Archangel Gabriel being set upon by an imperial eagle representing Germany. In fact, Hungary's wartime government was fully complicit with the Nazis and willingly rounded up 400,000 Jews for deportation to death camps. Authorities put up the statue in the middle of the night and surrounded it with protective bars to thwart protesters who had picketed the site for months. All right, and from the Only in America file, also courtesy of the week, we have this. An Illinois double murder suspect has filed a 15-count complaint to a local judge about conditions in jail. He says his prison meals are boring and that the towels are too small. Adam Landerman, 21, also complains that the breakfast is served at an indecent hour, 6.15 a.m. Also, the books in the library aren't up to date. Said the local sheriff's deputy chief, we're not a hotel, we're a jail. And a New Hampshire woman who pulled into a highway median to save two stranded ducklings was given a $100 ticket. Haley Bibeau stopped to save the ducklings after their mother was run over, but a state trooper said median stops are permitted only when the motorists, quote, are truly having an emergency, unquote. All right, and I, and I know that a lot of you are quite keen to follow the contest we're engaging in here at Radio Parallax as to who will win the award for the horse's ass of the year. We note that a new candidate has now entered the fray. She's just 19 years old, but Kendall Jones is cutting quite a figure. She's a Texas Tech cheerleader, and some weeks back she uh, prompted some outrage by posting gruesome photos from several African big game hunting trips she'd made with her dad on her Facebook page. In one hunt, she's seen sitting astride a dead lion with a megawatt smile on her face and a bow and quiver of pink arrows by her side. Another one, the then 13-year-old Jones poses with her first African kill, a Cape Buffalo, which is considered one of the big five that she has slaughtered along with the lion. She's bagged a leopard, an elephant, and a rhinoceros. Of course, predictably, idiots out there speak up for her and claim that, well, actually, she's a conservationist. After all, trophy hunters shell out thousands of dollars for the right to shoot big game, bringing an estimated $200 million a year to African communities. And that money helps maintain the animals' privately owned habitats and pays their veterinary bills of up to 15000 a month. So we don't know, but I guess they keep these animals in enclosures until some rich Texas jackass shows up to murder them. Well, the further reading shows that we're apparently on the right track. The Independent of the UK notes that these bloodthirsty tourists who patronize these, quote, canned hunting, unquote, outfits barely have to walk from their jeeps to kill their animal victims, many of which are zoo cast-offs and are practically led right to the person with the gun. And I gotta say, the picture of this dead lion, which looks like a magnificent specimen of big cat, 
with this grinning bimbo leaning on it is pretty disturbing. On the other hand, we got to take a break. Let's go out in a bit of good news. Apparently, there is some good news in this uh, big game hunting arena. Apparently, in a rare victory against rhinoceros poaching, a South African hunter was sentenced this week to 77 years in jail. Mandlot Chauke was convicted of rhino horn theft, illegal hunting, and trespassing into Kruger National Park. He was also held accountable for the death of an accomplice killed in a shootout with police. Rhino horns used in Asia and the Middle East in aphrodisiacs and folk medicines, and I guess for knife scabbards, fetch around $33,000 a pound on the black market, which is a lot more than gold. So we're glad to see that one of these jerks has been thrown in the slammer for hopefully quite a long time. Because maybe the worst part about all that story is that rhino horn is made of keratin, the same substance that your fingernails are made of. And as someone who owns and operates a, tri- a and as someone who owns and operates a clinic that treats erectile dysfunction, I'm here to tell you, you ain't gonna get any benefit from powdered rhino horn. You guys hear that over in China? Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Jungle where the mighty tiger 